Hello and welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast. My name's Shane Brennan and I'm a Chief Executive of the Cold Chain Federation in the UK and the host of this podcast. So I'm talking to you from uh, sunny San Diego. I have the really tough job sometimes of representing the UK Cold Chain business at international forums. And I don't come much bigger or better than the international convention of the IIRW and WFLO, which is the uh, two parts of the Global Cold Chain Alliance, the DC-based international network for the cold storage industry. We really do have the, the, the biggest businesses, the leaders, the absolute brains trust of cold chain here with us this week. Um, and obviously, I'm trying to make sure I'm getting as much content as I can and capturing as much uh, insight as to what's going on. There are some big, uh, big similarities. You know, around the world, we're struggling with the cost of energy. We're struggling with the cost of labor. We're um, looking confidently but carefully at the trends in the marketplace, the cost of borrowing impacting on investment trends, but um, fundamentally uh, a real confidence, a community that knows that it's done a really good job over the last four years, that's really stepped up, whether in the US, in Asia, in Africa, to, to keep, the, keep the world fed, to fulfill that, that core mission. Um, and we believe we're going to be able to carry on doing that right the way through into the into the years ahead. Also, some very exciting uh, changes in, in how the GCCA is constituted, made a focus on international. We established a great partnership with the GCCA uh, or reinforced that partnership in the last uh, in the last year. And it was great to sort of uh, cement that with this with this trip. Um, in terms of the uh, this conversation, um, there are some people that um, you meet and you, you hit it off with. You, you really get a, a sense that they, uh, they really get it and they're real thinkers and they really are uh, able to uh, engage on not just their own business and their own brand, but actually have a real sort of passion for, for the industry in the future and are all about change. And that's why I felt it was a really good idea to capture this conversation with Bob Tipman from Tipman Engineering. Um, Bob is uh, based in Indiana. He'll tell you a bit about himself in the, in, in the podcast. Um, but he's, he's an inventor. And he brings and he and he he thinks about very deeply about how to solve problems in the cold chain, long established problems. Um, and we're going to talk about that. That's the theme of this conversation. Also, full disclosure: Bob is the first person when I met him for the first time in in Rotterdam earlier this year at the European GCA conference to tell me who wasn't a member of the team, a member of the board, a member of my family, who spontaneously told me that he listened to the podcast and was a big fan. So. Um, given the leadership, the listenership numbers that I have, um, you know, we reward our most loyal customers with their own conversation on the Cold Chain podcast. Um, but it's not just that. Bob has got some really, really good things to, to, to talk about. Don't let Bob on his own, though. Make sure you are subscribing to this podcast. Make sure you're sharing it with your friends. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on Google, and all the other the podcast platforms, as well as direct from the Cold Chain Federation website. Um, don't just find it. Seek it out. Subscribe. Share it with your friends. Um, and maybe even leave us a review. That really helps me to get this, spread the word about this uh, this important uh, way of, of sharing insight. Right, over to the conversation. Here we have my conversation with Bob Tipman from Tipman Engineering. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast. How are you doing, Shane? I'm, del- I'm great. It's great to be here. We've had a great couple of days already here at the GCCA conference in uh, San Diego. Um, now, Bob, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself in a moment, but um, what I'm really excited about with this conversation is I get to talk to somebody who, who I've got to know over the last year or so and 
Bob is, uh, I'm talking, you're there, but I'm going to talk about you. <laughs> Bob is uh, the sort of person that invent, is an inventor. He's always about problem solving. He's got, not only has he got great product, he's also always thinking about what's the next problem, the wrong challenge, and really engaged with the whole thing about the industry. And that's why I thought it was really important to capture some of the conversations we've had over the last year in audio for the benefit of, of the members. So, um, Bob, welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast. Can you just uh, tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm actually fourth generation in refrigeration, uh, refrigeration engineer. I've uh, built refrigerated buildings and uh, I have a real passion for building widgets, building equipment that solves problems in the in the cold chain. Yeah. And what's the name of your business? Uh, quick Freeze. Quick Freeze. Mm -hmm. Now, if you came to uh, Cold Chain Live in Birmingham, Bob and, and Katrina, his wife, were, were with us and they were... Uh, some people I know that a number of members are asking you about your product because I think you've got a really important product at the right time with the with the quick freeze uh, solution. Um, do you want to explain what that is so that we can uh, talk a bit more about it? Sure, it's it's next generation blast freezing. So uh, conventional blast freeze is, is a little room that you put the pallets in, shut the door, turn it on, and fans blow at at the pallets. With quick freeze, uh, we can do that in the warehouse instead of in a separate room. And uh, we force air through the, the spacers that go between each layer uh, on the pallet. And because we force the air to only flow through that, it freezes the product much faster than a blast freezer. Yeah, and, and also doesn't require the separate unit and, and, and the other elements uh, of that. It's uh, quite an ingenious and quite a simple, uh, elegant way of, of, of dealing with a problem, particularly for businesses, I guess, that are not necessarily trying are doing blast freezing more occasionally in their operations or trying to want to get into blast freezing and want to put a solution in that isn't a full-on a full-on unit and they might well do that and realize that they don't need to ever go for anything other than what, than what you guys do absolutely yeah yeah and it's uh, uh over the last year we've been doing more and more outside of the u.s north america area so yeah. it's, uh, it's it's very nice getting to know you guys yeah yeah so bob um we're going to get into talk a bit about some of the issues. And like I say, you know, I know you've got some really sort of deep thoughts around how we can take forward quite big changes in how, how cold chain works, both here in the US and around the world. But before that, just a bit about your background. You've already mentioned that you come from a, a generation, multi-generational cold storage family. You know, can you sort of explain a little bit more about, about the Tipman family and the different parts of your business, how you've, how you've got to where you are today? Sure. It, it, it's pretty interesting. The, uh, uh, the Tipman family actually owned and operated a brewery in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And uh, at that time, industrial refrigeration was in its infancy, and they actually uh, got rid of the brewery, but kept they, they found that they were really good at keeping the beer cold. And so that's what got them into refrigeration. And then uh, from there, the family moved from Pennsylvania to uh, Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And my great-grandfather uh, was involved in industrial refrigeration and was also an inventor. He came up with uh, it's called the turbo ice machine, which is uh, any industrial ice producing machine is built around his uh, invention. Wow. So I'm trying to get my head around the time frame. So what sort of refrigeration were you talking about back then when it was starting out? Oh, it was ammonia refrigeration. Ammonia refrigeration. Yeah. So what we're talking about, 100 and... 100. No, no. This is in... Uh, he did the turbo ice machine in the, uh, in the 50s or 60s. Oh, okay. And, yeah. Okay, wow. But then... But yeah, it was... Turn of the century when uh, his his family got into refrigeration. Wow. Okay. And um, and obviously, you know, 
number of different parts of the, of the bit of the family involved in refrigeration, but you very specifically focused in on 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 innovations and engineering solutions and stuff. And is that because of your personal interest background? Is yeah, I um, so the, there's another branch of the Tippin family that actually uh, making paintball guns. Okay, and I worked for that company and uh, learned a lot about product development and machine design mm -hmm. and. Combining those skills with the other refrigeration experience I had, really, I was attracted to work with the, the Quifreeze product, which at the time was more of a, um, you build it on site, like a stick-built product. And what we have today is a universal machine that we can ship anywhere in the world. We just shipped some uh, a couple weeks ago to New Zealand. So we're, we're going all over now. Wow. And um, obviously, you've... you've the quick freeze, you sort of looked at that issue around you know, the, the growing need to blast freeze, the growing opportunity of blast freeze for, 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 for third-party logistics businesses and, and felt that there was a different way of approaching that. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that there are a number of challenges that cold chain, or are there challenges the cold chain is currently, or ways the cold chain currently operates that could be better, could be different? Yeah, I'm really passionate about energy. So, yeah. uh, you know, we, we've kind of talked about this a little bit, but uh, I believe that we need to look seriously at the standards for storage town. And uh, we were uh, discussing this with a food scientist yeah. last night and uh, he he's on, on our side and we were talking about like a minus 10, minus 12 C uh, should be the new standard. And it's, I feel like the, those standards were set when we really didn't have the technology to monitor and ensure that uh, that product was being treated correctly through the cold chain, and we do now. And as as we get more, you know, towards full transparency and traceability in the cold chain, I I think that it becomes much easier to justify raising that temperature, and doing so could save. It could cut globally. It could cut up twenty percent off of the energy required in our industry and in grocery stores and uh, there's just a lot of opportunity if we were to yeah i mean i totally i mean and, uh, you i guess you know you and i were talking about this and uh and we were like sort of like wow you've been thinking the same thing i've been thinking and, and, <laughs> and, and so we got very excited about it and felt we needed to record the conversation but i also um sort of start one step back from that and let's get let's start from the sort of basics of you know passion about energy i think that one of the things that as a European talking about this, you know, I know that I'm living in a world where my members are facing paying energy prices that are five times what they were a year ago because of the shortages we're experiencing. We've also got a very big uh, regulatory pressure around the way we use and consume energy. Um, it's not so usual to hear it coming out of with an American accent. So <laughs> where do you um, where do you think the US kind of cold storage industry is, is at in terms of it comes to, to, to how it uses and manages energy? The, the U.S. market is always been, and, and it's the same in Europe, it's labor and it's energy. Yeah. And uh, the more regulatory pressure and just cost of energy is going to uh, force people to invest into technology that's going to save them energy. Um, so I think that that's, uh, you know, the, the people in our industry are motivated to reduce kilowatts. And I think I think that, you know, we sort of, we can, it's, it's, it's simplistic and wrong to say, you know, just because it's a lot cheaper to buy and purchase energy in the US that it, there isn't a concern. Good business people control their costs. Exactly. And that's how you become competitive. You can, you know, charge your customers a price, but if you're reducing your overheads, then, then that's where you get, that's where you make profit. Yeah. So that's always been the case. I think it, I think everyone's feeling that pressure more now um, than, they, than they ever did. 
And I think that, but I guess what I think we're at the cusp of an opportunity about is actually trying to not just talk about it from the point of view of good housekeeping, but start talking about it from first principles. Yeah, yeah. I agree. What do we actually need? We should be energy. Why are we using energy? What are the what are the reasons for using energy? And um and how can we do it differently? And that's where I think this 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 fundamental point, which you which you've already already spoken about, which is we operate particularly in frozen food at set temperatures. And to be fair, it's set temperatures that are in inter, in in national regulations, regional regulations, international regulations. That naught degrees Fahrenheit. Minus 18, 18 degrees C exactly. is codified everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's printed on every box. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and so it's no, it feels almost sacrilegious <laughs> to be talking about that as something that needs to be challenged. But, but you quite right, you know, you've identified this as a, th- as a as an area where you think we could be thinking very, very differently. Well, I think I think that we need to uh, look back at the research and fund new research projects that demonstrate what we can safely do with food. And I, I believe that the, the temperatures that were chosen were chosen at the time because we had unreliable uh, measuring devices and monitoring. We really didn't have monitoring. You know, you shut the doors and go home at night and who knows what happens. Uh, we have all that technology now and we can use that to really uh, take a deep cut out of the energy that we're consuming. Yeah. And I think from a safety point of view, um, there is, an, there is a sense that, you know, you have to operate at these higher, these lower temperatures for, for safety reasons. But actually some of the regulators, I mean, the UK, our regulators don't see minus 18 as a must operate app for us to keep the food safe. Um, it is obviously a conversation about quality. And I guess what makes everybody nervous when you start talking about, about operating at different temperatures in, in the supply chain is, is the customer is always right. And the customer has very strong views about wanting to make sure their product is kept at the right temperature. So I guess that reassurance piece, how do you reassure people that if you're operating at a higher temperature, that isn't bad. That isn't that isn't trying to get one over them or trying to take a risk with their product. Yeah, I, I believe that the answer lies in traceability. Yeah. So eventually we will have some sort of blockchain style uh, way to register every treatment that that product has seen all mm. through the cold chain. I don't know when that will happen, but it, it, it will happen. And I, I've seen uh, the starts of that in Europe. We have a uh, new regulation on traceability with produce uh, coming online in the U.S. Uh, but I believe that traceability will uh, shine a spotlight on some of the, the sins that we're covering up with having such a low storage temperature. It, uh, it hides any kind of temperature abuse or anything like that and keeps that product safe. But I don't believe that it's necessary anymore. I mean, I always look at the pharmaceutical supply chain, um, you know, in the UK and Europe and I'm sure in the US as well. They've always had a much stricter approach to how you monitor the life of the product from production through to through to end, end consumption. Because, you know, they see it as a life and death consideration, quite rightly. And um, and so you do see the kind of systematic use of product temperature mapping right the way through from, from end to end. Now, I think we'd always say in pharma... They operate with different cost models, different margins. Yeah. They operate with different volumes <laughs> right. of product. The, the, the value chain. of one pallet. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, so um, there's always been the same cost effectiveness consideration when it comes to the food chain. But I know that this is an area where you're literally looking at new product, aren't you? So mm-hmm. do you talk a bit about how you see that potentially being being possible in the food chain at an affordable price? Yeah, the ability to deploy uh, temp sensors in 
wide array systems. Uh, we're we're doing that currently with our QFM. You you put uh, you know 400 of these in a room. We're mapping that error uh, on all of those, and the cost of deployment of wireless sensors is very very low compared to what it was. We uh, we're we're developing a sensor right now that uh, is battery powered that lasts for a year inside a freezer. So. Uh, that also lines up with the certification requirements that we have, so we can certify those probes. That certification is good for a year, and it also lines up with the battery life. So it's uh, that's kind of the, the the direction that we see going on. How can we deploy uh, a larger amount of temp sensors so that we can get a better idea of what that heat map actually looks like in some of these spaces? So one of the things that I've always talk to operators about, because I've always wanted to understand this better, you know, why, why, why don't you have, well, why don't you, why, well, firstly, why don't you measure temperature of product rather than temperature of air? Because it tends to be a system of temp measuring the air that the product is in rather than, right. rather than the product itself. Um, but also, um, how, wh why don't you put these probes in these products and, and follow them from farm to fork in, in that way? And I guess one of the problems is, is ownership of probes, literally. It's, it's handing on a football down the supply chain. Yeah, so we, yeah, we, we actually, so we, Started, we call it the T-probe, but uh, you can put it into the product and it's Wi-Fi so you have good visibility and then you can ship it to another location, it'll log that data and then it'll latch onto the Wi-Fi at the other location. We're also looking at, it's called, the technology is called LoRa, it's long range radio, and being able to get visibility all the way through. Uh, the, the LoRa, I think it's uh, 30 miles <clears throat> uh, range, so that, I don't know that that feels underdeveloped at this point, uh, and I'm not ready to to invest fully in the Laura. But I'm expecting. I, 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 I guess I guess with that kind of thing, unless you can set, unless you can set a solution that says right, you can sit at your you can send the product out of your of your factory mm -hmm. as a manufacturer or whatever, um, and you can basically track it across the world, you know, literally seamlessly through the technology, just. A thirty mile range. You're not going to send a vehicle behind it thirty miles behind, to make, right, yeah. just to keep to keep track of it. No, no. There's antennas that are uh, already deployed. Relaying. Yeah, it's kind of an open network. I, there's there's somebody is going to figure that out. There, I mean, there's people that are putting uh, wireless APs in into the lorries. Uh, yeah. That's the right term, right? Yeah, lorries. Yeah. Trucks. yeah. yeah. Uh, so they are they're putting cellular antennas and things like that. Nobody that's not figured out. So there's. There's a couple of different options, and there isn't one that is the clear winner on this is the best approach on monitoring the temperature over the road. So at the moment, what you're what you're able to provide and what the solutions that are on the market, yours yours and others, um, obviously yours are the best. You know, goes <laughs> right, without right. saying in this yeah, conversation, yeah. Um, is is that effectively it's it's a more sophisticated way of tr of, of capturing temperatures at, at, at intervention points. Yeah, well, coming in and out of the store, or whatever, <clears throat> or, or, or different points. And then being able to then have that as a set of data that's available to all the parties in the chain if they collaborate to do so. Well, I, I think it's, when I'm looking at designing one of these sensors, it's really, uh, I'm trying to reduce the latency in uh, someone knowing that they have an issue. No. So we set up alarms and, and really uh, data collection in the past was much, much more time consuming. You had to, uh, you would have this digital sensor that would read out temperature, but then you had to manually log the uh, location, the skew of the product, the, uh, the license plate data on the, the pallet. And uh, that was one of the things that we did with our uh, T-probe is it's got a barcode 
scanner built in. And so you're scanning the information and deploying the probe. And then all of that data is no longer in separate silos. It's all together in one place and capturing that. So it's really, let's, let's make it easy for people to collect this data and encourage them to do so as often as possible. And I think, because I guess, I guess it's about controlling the two, the, two, the two parts of this. On the one hand, there's the technology has always been a bit of a hassle to use. And you know, you've already got a number of processes that you're training your people to do when they when they put product in, when they dispatch it, when they're when they're handling it. There's a potential lots of conflict around those around those records and, and the way in which things work. You can lose customers, you can lose money, you can lose product literally by but but through 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 getting that wrong. So there's a lot of peril. Um but also there's then a a mentality issue. You know, why would we want this data? What's the reason for this? And I think you you said it already, you know, the idea of hiding the sins or, or, or wanting not to be under that level of scrutiny in your operations. Um, and I wonder whether that, we come at that because we, we start from a safety and a kind of product quality and a contractual relationship with the customer perspective in that situation. Um, and we don't properly consider the energy opportunity and the cost opportunity of operating in a different way. So do you think that we're at the point now where we're going to see a rebalancing of that? Yeah, it's uh, it's technology and it's culture. You're right. Yeah. So uh, I, I really believe that the more transparency and traceability that we can offer and afford is going to make our food supply safer. So I think what we're really sort of talking about here is that there is a, the technology is is now moving into a place where it's very easy potentially to use, it's affordable to invest in. And it starts to open up the conversation about the opportunity of thinking differently about the temperature set points and opening a conversation up between the links in the chain about how we might might do stuff do stuff better. Um, I guess another way of looking at the sort of principles of, of how we use energy is when we use energy. Absolutely. And are there ways in which you think we could be doing that smarter or better? Sure. I, I mean, it's uh, they call it flywheeling or uh, they turn it down colder during the night. Yeah. Uh, but really operating these warehouses during off-peak hours and then turning them completely off when we're in peak time uh, is is the next piece of that puzzle. Let's, you know, a lot of these uh, utility providers make so much electricity every hour and if it gets used, great. If it doesn't, it goes to waste. And so they're looking at investing in their own battery systems, but cold storages can be used as batteries as well. So uh, I, it's, out in California, it's very common that uh, the utilities will communicate with the operators and say, okay, uh, let's shut down so you have 15 minutes to shut everything down. And all of our equipment uh, integrates with those control systems so that they can uh, do that very, you know, with a push of a button. Uh, but I, I really feel that we could be doing blast freezing off peak and uh, really just pushing, pushing the envelope on using using what the utilities can provide better instead of uh, waiting for them to yeah. push the button. One of the problems we've got in the UK on that is that we had a pretty well-established understanding that if you if you sort of use your main power drawer at night, you would get a cheaper price for, the, for that power than you would operating at different times. They changed that quite a lot in the UK in the, last, in the last 10 years, so it became much less attractive. It's still attractive, but it's nowhere near as attractive. And that, that, that was a big step back, I think, from the point of view of, of how the grid see things. But I, but I totally recognize what you might know. The UK, 
probably like California, you know, relatively dense population centers, not necessarily enough generation to cope with the population demand and industrial demand of our, of our, of our, of our island. Um, having to start thinking about things, not in terms of big power producing centers, pushing out power to a load of passive recipients, moving into a situation where you've got lots more generation happening at a micro scale, you know, solar, wind, whatever, just generating at, at facility, and then potentially sometimes pushing that back into the grid. But also, probably more importantly, in terms of this game, is this idea of, 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 of you holding the power in a place that needs it and then releasing that that, that power on using off, off-peak demand. Well, and some of your members were involved in, uh, there's a project for energy storage using liquid air. I don't know if you're... So, so, so yeah. So, so, I mean, cold, this is one of the things that I think is the one of the features of cold chain is cold chain literally is an energy storage as a service. And that's, that's, that's exactly what it exists for. Yeah, there's a, a large, like a 250 megawatt uh, yeah, system. High view power. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're doing that. They're not actually a member of ours. I've been, I'm talking to them a little bit. But um, um, one of the things, I, I mean, I've asked these engineering questions before, but you know, I don't think you can do it at a scale that I kind of had this lovely idea of if you had like a, a cold chain facility that was storing energy in liquid air as well as doing cold storage. Yeah. It doesn't really work that way. It doesn't work that way. I, I, no. it's really low temperature no, minus but, 300 or something but, but this idea of demand response and grid integration and actually having much smarter smarter links between the grid and and cold storage industry and other industrial users particularly cold storage is absolutely at the at the core of things and it, particularly if you start to look at the pace of electrification of vehicles for example mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest um, uh, big picture challenges we're going to have in logistics generally cold storage in particular, is we're already high energy users. If we're going to start having to charge a lot of vehicles to do the actual backwards and forwards between our facilities, then the amount of power required is going to be huge, but also the amount of power we're storing and how we're storing it. Those vehicles are going to be big batteries that are storing electricity and have to be powered through that responsive grid approach. Yeah, and I think we can be part of that solution. The the peak hours have changed, especially with solar, uh, but, you know, I, th- I think that we can do some production on site. You know, we have these giant roofs on these buildings that we can be uh, putting solar in. And you guys have done a good job of that for a while. Yeah. Uh, but we'll see more of that. And it's really uh, the adding batteries to the utility is is going to take away some of that, the off-peak that I was talking about. But it's still going to be there yeah. because the the sun stops shining, you know, half the time. And... The wind stops blowing. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we yeah. need batteries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can I ask you just just a sort of more a more general point? I know you're uh, you personally are very committed to being part of the cold chain community, you know, in the US, but also reaching out into the the world now. You know, you're very interested in getting more involved in Europe. I know, and in the UK, and investing time and effort to to get to know. It. Um, why do you think that's? Why do you do it? Why is it is it good for you know? Is it all about good for business, or what are the different what are the drivers that sort of make you? invest time and effort in, in these sorts of events like the one we're at today? I, I have a lot of exposure. So uh, I travel quite a bit in U.S. and Canada, and I'm in, I, we keep track of my freezer count. I think I'm at 45 or so this year, that uh, 45 different freezers that I've been in. All right, wow. And so I, I kind of see everything that, that people are doing here, and, and that leads to uh, better product design and problem solving for future products. And I want to see what you guys are doing. And mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the kind of the attitude when I was out there is like, okay, U.S. doesn't care about energy. U.S. is 20 years behind us, we behind what we're doing. And 
Uh, everyone, so I, everyone thinks they're the best. <laughs> it just exactly. goes without saying. Yeah. So I, I want to learn. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to see how you guys do it and uh, see all, what that, I can learn from that. It's that intellectual curiosity that really comes across when you talk to you, Bob. You just sort of, it's not just about, you know, you obviously have got a successful business that's growing and, and, and providing good solutions for customers, but you're really, you're really looking for the next solution. You're looking Absolutely. to, you're looking to, you're, 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 you're someone, one of those people that wants to change things. <laughs> I do. I, yeah, I would, I, it, it would be my, uh, a fulfillment of my life's ambition to make a double digit difference in energy consumption worldwide in our industry. So I think that's kind of what I'm aiming for. And it's solving problems is a lot of fun. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, I really look forward to to talking more about this stuff. You are preaching to the choir when it comes to the UK uh, cold chain conversation. Um, and I know you are, I think everyone agrees that we need to be finding ways to use this energy. I think we, this idea of going beyond just, smart solutions into actually rethinking some of the culture of how we do things Absolutely. i think is, is 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 the way we can make those sorts of game-changing uh interventions um so let's uh let, let's 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 find ways to do that let's find ways to, to talk more and i know you'll be over in the uk again throughout 20 in different points in 23 so Absolutely. looking forward to doing that um i know you're a big beatles fan so i'm hopefully going to see you in liverpool uh, oh yeah i can't wait yeah that'll be fun uh in september next year and um we're going to get back to our conference here and find out what's going on with, uh, with, with the rest of the U.S. cold chain businesses. Always a pleasure, Shane. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Cheers. Cheers. I said it at the start, but I'll say it again now. I love conversations with people like Bob, people who are not just about running great businesses and servicing their customers with great products today, but have really got their eyes on the future and how they can make a game-changing difference. Not many people would say that their ambition is to change the way the world consumes energy, or at least the way the cold chain world consumes energy um but i genuinely believe that bob does and i wouldn't bet against him doing it so i look forward to more conversations with him if you like this kind of thing if this is what you can get you passionate then get involved in the networks get involved in great organizations like the gcca or obviously get involved in the culture and federation there are so many different ways to engage 2022 is only another year of growth for us with new events face-to-face with virtual events with the podcast and there's going to be more to come in 2023 I'm really excited about it. I've got a couple more days here in San Diego to soak up as much as I can and bring it back with me. Um, But then I'll be back to the grindstone in the UK, working out what's going on with the Liz Trust government, uh, working out how we're going to support our members through what's going to be a tough, a tough winter. Um, But you leave a place like this inspired that we're up to the task. And and so until we're together again, thank you for your time listening to us on the Cold Chain Podcast.